So we do things a little differently this morning, which is what I told you next week. Maybe what I told you last week. Maybe next week I'll tell you the same thing. But anyway, here's the thing. Uh, last week we were looking at, we just basically took a moment to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the March on Washington. Now our normal practice, though, is to work our way through a book of scripture. And we will be doing this as... Um, Emily referenced in her prayer. We'll be looking at the book of Haggai for the next four, five, maybe six weeks. But we have to do something a little bit different this morning because in Haggai, we pick up the history of Israel about three quarters of the way through. So it's really hard to understand what's going on in Haggai without understanding the first three quarters. Now, last week, we didn't spend a lot of time in the biblical text. We spent much more time with, with video and, and life issues. I tell you that because this week, we're going to spend a lot more time in the biblical text. No illustrations, no humorous anecdotes, no stories about my life or my kids when they were young. Uh, we'll spend a lot more time in the biblical text. So it may take a little bit more... Concentration. It's not deep, but it may take a little bit more concentration. So let me at least promise you this. If you follow me for the next, oh, 25 minutes, what I can give you is two things. Uh, the history of Israel, not bad, 2,000 years and 25 minutes. The, the whole history of Israel, the, the salient points of the history of Israel, and the character of God. So about 12 and a half points, you know, per item, and you've you got a pretty good deal. So hang with me. We're going to take a quick skim through Scripture. You will need the Pew Bible. If you brought your own, whatever these electronic devices are, okay, find it. You're going, you've got search functions there. If you don't have a Bible in the pew that you're in, feel free to move the pews around, move around in the pew. Don't move the pew. Move your body around in the pew and find a pew Bible. We will be looking at it, and, and we'll be working our way through Mainly what I want to show you this morning is this. That the God of Haggai, and the God of Israel, is still our God. And the way they related to him is pretty much the way we relate to him. A lot of people, for some reason, we got this thing circulating, that, that in the Old Testament, God was fierce, and salvation was by obedience, you know, you obey and then God saves you. And in the New Testament, God is kinder and gentler. And salvation is through faith and, and how we live doesn't really matter. And this was actually, this teaching's been around for almost 2,000 years. It was the first heresy rejected by the early church corporately. Now, if you've been around for a while, and if you've been a Bible study leader in Charis or over the years, then a lot of this will be familiar to you. Hmm. So here's one thing. You've got two choices. You, if, you, if you've been around for a while and this is all familiar to you, never mind, you can doze off. It's okay. But if I see you dozing off, I'll assume that it's familiar to you, and so I'll call on you for the next answer. Okay? All right. All right. What I want to show you, first of all, is that salvation has always been by grace. God has always taken the initiative. He's always been gracious to his people. From the very beginning, from, from Adam and Eve, but we won't start that early. But whenever God reaches out to his creation, his creatures, he always begins with grace. It's never been salvation by works. So turn with me, page 11 in your pew Bible. Page 11, Genesis chapter 17. 
This is not God's first encounter with Abraham, but it's an early encounter. Genesis 17, page 11. And all of the notes are in your pew, all the outlines in your pew Bible. I mean, sorry, is in your bulletin, so you can follow along easy enough. Page 11, Genesis chapter 17. Notice how the story begins. It doesn't begin with God saying to Abraham, If you obey me, I will love you and you will live. Notice how it begins, chapter 17, verse 3. As for me, this is God speaking. First, he says, here's what I do for you. As for me, this is my covenant with you. This is what I will do for you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will your name be called Abram. Your name will now be Abraham. For I have made you the father of many nations. The name change doesn't change a lot in the meaning, but it signifies a change in his identity. Now God is going to make him the father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful, many descendants. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you. What has Abraham done to earn this covenant? Nothing. This is not salvation by works. This is God's grace. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting. I will be your God. As an everlasting covenant between you and with your descendants after you for the generations to come, I will be your God and the God of your descendants after you. So he's promised Abraham and all of his descendants a relationship with God. He's promised him innumerable descendants, even enough descendants to make up a whole nation. And then he promises him a third thing. Verse 8. The whole land of Canaan, where you are now an alien, I will give to you as an everlasting possession. You see God's grace reaching out to Abraham. God takes the initiative. Abraham doesn't, Abraham doesn't turn to God and say, save me or, or come to me. God turns to Abraham. And Abraham's done nothing to earn this. Abraham's just a, a, a Bedouin, just a, a peasant. And God offers him a relationship with the everlasting God, the eternal God. And God offers him descendants, innumerable descendants. God offers him a place to call home so he doesn't have to be a nomad. God has reached out in grace. And only then does God raise the issue of obedience. Remember verse 3? As for me, only after all those promises does God turn in verse 9 to say, and as for you. As for me, this is what I give you. I make a relationship with you. Even now, Abraham's not earning anything. You know the inherent nature of a relationship. One person initiates and the other person responds. You know, the, the first time you ask for that date, I was going to say the first time guys, but now girls can ask for dates. The first time you ask for that date, girls, you can't ask, well, okay, if your father's here, you can't ask for dates, but if, he, if your father's not here, you can. Never mind. <laughs> I see things. But anyway, um, you know, where was I? Okay. <laughs> the, it has to be reciprocation. And if that date goes the way you want and one day you're married, there has to be some level of reciprocation. It's not like you're earning love. The love is shown and you reciprocate. So God says, look, as for me, this is what I will do for you. 
And then God has invited Abraham into a relationship. And so he says to Abraham in verse 9, As for you, this is your commitment to this relationship. You must keep my covenant. You and your descendants after you for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you. The covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Now, in time, God adds some more requirements. You know, the book of Leviticus will help flesh that out. Uh, numbers a little bit. Deuteronomy. God adds a, a few more details to this co uh, covenant and this obligation. But it was never the way that Abraham or Israel, it was never the way that they earned God's approval. It was never the way that they earned their salvation. God is gracious and invites his people to respond. But if they are to have relationship to him, with him, they must respond. And that's the Ten Commandments, reciprocation in relationship. Uh, the law of Leviticus, God is holy, we must be holy. Here's what it looks like if you want to be in relationship with God. They were never earning their salvation. They were only responding to the initiative of God. That's Abraham's story. And then we move on to Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. Around page 129, we'll start there, page 129. Now you all, if you have much background in the Old Testament or much background in church, you would know the story of Abraham. Well, Moses is the second major, well, let's say this. Adam was the first character. Abraham was the second famous character in the Old Testament. And then Moses is the third. And we see the same thing. You know, and when you look at Moses, when you think about Moses, what do we, what's the phrase that comes to mind, right? The law of Moses. And we think if ever any people earned their salvation, it was in the time of Moses because they had that law. So over 600 commandments they had to obey. They earned their salvation. No. They didn't earn their salvation. Salvation was still by grace, by God's initiative. Turn to page 129. Um, this is just, uh, you know, uh, basically what you have in Deuteronomy. This is the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 4. Basically what you have in Deuteronomy is a renewal of the covenant. I could have taken you to many passages, but... Deuteronomy 4 shows it. Deuteronomy chapter 4, page 129. Deuteronomy 4, verse 32. Ask now about the former days, long before your time, from the day God created man on the earth. Ask from one end of the heavens to the other. Has anything in all of time, in all of space, has anything ever happened like this? Has anything so great as this ever happened? Has anything like it ever been heard of? So what is God's grace? Has any other people heard the voice of God speaking out of fire as you have and lived? God spoke to the people of Israel. Has any God ever tried to take for himself one nation out of another nation by testings, by miraculous signs and wonders, by war, by a mighty hand, by an outstretched arm, or by great and awesome deeds, like all the things the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes? When God comes to Israel to talk about their relationship, he doesn't start with Israel's obligation to earn his pleasure. What does God start with? God reminds them of two great events in their history which define them. God appeared to them at Sinai. He spoke out of the fire. God delivered them from Egypt, from their captivity. 
And God says, has any other nation ever experienced this? Has any other people heard about this? Has this happened in anybody else's history? God is saying, I took the initiative with you. I was gracious to you. I delivered you from slavery. I spoke to you from Sinai. I revealed myself to you. Moses' relationship with God and Israel's relationship with God began with grace. Totally gratuitous initiative of God. They didn't earn anything. And only after God's grace does he call them to obey. Take a look later on in chapter 4, verse 39 and 40. Acknowledge and take to heart this day that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth below. There is no other. And so what are they to do? Because God's been gracious, because God has chosen them, because he delivered to them, because he spoke to them, now he says, in response to grace, keep his decrees and commands which I am giving you today. Moses tells the people, keep God's decrees and commands which I am giving you today so that it may go well with you and your children after you that you may live long in the land the Lord your God gives you for all time. God gave them this land. And now, by grace, God gave it to them. Nothing they did earned it. But now they must respond to God in love and obedience to continue on in God's blessing. So salvation, I want to show you, first of all, is by grace, even in the Old Testament. It was by grace for Abraham. It was by grace for Moses and for Israel. Salvation was never by works or by obedience. It was always by grace. The second thing I want to show you from Scripture, salvation by grace, not by works. The second thing I want to show you is that, and you've got to, you know, this has to be, you have to be careful with this. You can easily misconstrue it. Salvation is conditional. Whether you call it the, the full enjoyment of divine blessings is conditional. Remember, what, what has God said to Abraham? I give you my grace. Now obey. And he asks only a little thing. And he, what does he say to Moses? I've given you my grace. And Moses and people of Israel, I've given you my grace. And now he calls for obedience. And a little bit more. But God always requires obedience of those to whom he shows his grace to. And so by the end of the book of Deuteronomy, God lays out two pathways before them. Either they will obey as he's called them to, or they'll disobey. And if they obey, they have blessings. And if they disobey, they face judgment. They have curses. Turn with me to page 144. And he outlines here the blessings that follow obedience and the curses that follow disobedience. Page 144. Notice, they're still not earning God's kindness or grace. God granted that regardless of what they had ever done. But will they receive his blessings? He requires of them obedience. And then look at what follows from their obedience. Not because they obey, but as they stay in relationship with God, look at the blessings they have. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 3. You will be blessed in the city 
and blessed in the country. This is a figure of speech called merism. They didn't have suburbs. They only had two kinds of places. They had cities and they had countryside. So if you're blessed in the city and you're blessed in the countryside, where are you blessed? Everywhere. You will be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. The fruit of your womb, your children will be blessed. The crops of your land, the young of your livestock, the calves of your herd, the lambs of your flocks. What else? Your basket, your kneading trough, your, your, the things you own outside the house will be blessed. The things you own inside the house will be blessed. They have nothing else. Everything will be blessed. Wherever they go, they'll be blessed. Oh, you'll be blessed when you come in and blessed when you go out. Again, merism. What else? They can only be going in or they can be coming out. Well, only two things. Wherever you go, whatever you own, wherever you are, you'll be blessed. They haven't earned the blessing, but it's the result of staying in this relationship with God. Salvation was by grace. It's conditional upon obedience or enjoying the blessings of God. It's conditional on obedience. As they obey, they're blessed. But what happens if they don't follow God? Verse 15. If you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I'm giving you today, all these curses will come on you and will overtake you. And now he takes all those blessings that we've just read and reverses them. You'll be cursed in the city and you'll be cursed in the countryside. They'll be cursed wherever they go. Your basket and your kneading trough will be cursed. Inside the home, you'll be cursed. The fruit of your womb will be cursed. The crops of your land, the calves of your herds, the lambs of your flock. Inside your home, you'll be cursed. And whatever you own outside your home will be cursed. You'll be cursed when you come in and cursed when you go out. They didn't earn God's grace. They didn't earn salvation. But their enjoyment of the promises of God and the blessings of God is, is dependent on, is conditional upon their obedience. One of the most severe forms of, you know, as disobedience persists, God's most severe form of judgment was exile. Take a look at the next page, one, page 146, in verses, verse 62. Still Deuteronomy 28, verse 62. What God has told them is this. Here's blessing. And, and I give you this land. I give you descendants. And God says, all you have to do is reciprocate. Obey me. Love me. And he says, if you disobey me, if you turn from me, then you'll lose these blessings of land and descendants. The same things he offered them, he warns he'll take away. And here's the ultimate. As they persist for hundreds and hundreds of years in disobedience, God sends them prophets, calls them back. God reminds them of the law, calls them back. As they persist in disobedience, Deuteronomy 28 actually predicts what will happen. It looks forward in the centuries to come. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 62. This is Moses, still at the same time, before it's ever happened. He anticipates what will happen if they rebel against God. You who were as numerous as the stars in the sky. What was the blessing? He'd have innumerable descendants. And God says, I did that for you. But you who were as numerous as the stars in the sky will be left but few in number. Because you did not obey the Lord your God. Just as it pleased the Lord to make you prosper and increase in number, so it will please him to ruin you and destroy you. You will be uprooted from the land you are entering to possess. 
And the Lord will scatter you among the nations from one end of the earth to the other. So God has promised them innumerable descendants and he's promised them the land forever. But he warns them, if you disobey, you lose those descendants. They'll die. And you'll lose the land. And you'll go into exile. Now, all of this is the very beginning of the history of Israel. This is all Moses in Deuteronomy and before him Abraham in Genesis. This is all the very beginning of Israel's history. And Haggai takes us near to the end. What happened in Israel's history? Some of you know the broad outlines of the story. Uh, The broad outline is not obedience to God and blessing. The broad outline is is, is disobedience and curse. And finally then, exile. Israel was taken away from its land and was captured by by a superpower and brought into exile. But God promised, if exile ever happens, if you're that disobedient, you go into exile, there is still hope. So the first thing we see about salvation is that it's by grace, not by obedience. The second thing we see about salvation is that it has always been conditional. God expects reciprocation. He's a great and mighty God as well as a gracious Father. But he expects us to reciprocate his love by obedience and and love in return. And if we don't, then there's judgment that follows. Consequences follow that. But the third thing we learn about salvation from the Old Testament is that even when those worst of those consequences occurs, even when they've gone into exile, there's still hope. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 to 10, page 147, just a page or two later. Deuteronomy chapter 30. Again, Moses is talking as the history of Israel just begins. When all these blessings and curses I have set before you come upon you, you take them to heart wherever the Lord disperses you, wherever you are in exile, as you suffer under these curses. When you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart, with all your soul, according to everything I command you today, when you turn from your sin and obey God, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes. He'll have compassion on you. He'll gather you again from the nations where he scattered you. And even if you've been banished to the most distant land under the heavens, from there God will gather you back. He'll bring you to the land that belonged to your fathers. You will take possession of the land again. He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers were. And the Lord will circumcise your hearts. Again, as Moses looks to the future and he lays before them blessing, and curse, blessing for obedience and curse for disobedience. He sees that the curse will come upon them. They'll go into exile, but he offers them hope. If they come to their senses when they're in exile, if they return to God, God will return to them and he'll bring them back to the promises. He'll bring them back to the land. He'll bring them back to innumerable descendants. So let's jump forward 1,500 years, 1,300 years. Let's jump forward and see what happened to Israel. Second Chronicles chapter 36, page 333. We'll jump forward through all the history of Israel, now here and toward the end, toward denouement. This is the end of Israel's time in the land. 
Second Chronicles chapter 36, page 333 in the Pew Bible. After centuries of disobedience, and God continued to send his prophets, and once in a while Israel would come right, they'd obey the prophet, they'd come back to the law, they'd come back to God, and then God would give them blessing. But more or less the pattern was pretty much downhill. I'm skipping over David in that part of the history, Solomon. But here's toward the end of Israel's history in the land. Second Chronicles chapter 36, verse 15. The Lord... The God of their fathers sent word to them through his messengers again and again because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers. They despised his words. They scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. He brought up against them the king of the Babylonians. Babylonia was the superpower at the time. He brought up against his people and their land, the king of the Babylonians, who killed their young men with the sword, even in the sanctuary where they had fled for refuge. Uh, this king of Babylonia, his army, spared neither young man nor young woman, neither old man nor aged. God handed all of them over to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylonia. And Nebuchadnezzar carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasures of the Lord's temple, and the measures of the, the treasures of the king and his officials. And they set fire to God's temple. They broke down the wall of the city of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. And Nebuchadnezzar carried into exile to Babylon the remnant who escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons. You see, what Second Chronicles is saying is, that it goes back to the words of Moses and said, Moses had warned us this would happen to us, and now it's happened to us. Disobedience leads to curse, leads ultimately to exile. But Second Chronicles doesn't end there. Because in verse 23 we read, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. What had God said he would do if Israel disobeyed persistently, consistently, and was sent into exile? In exile, if Israel came to his senses, what had God said he would do? He said he'd bring them back to the land and he'd bless them. And he'd give them this land, and he'd give them descendants, and he'd give them a relationship with himself. So now they've disobeyed. They've rebelled. They cursed God, and God cursed them, and they went off into exile. But now what happens? God moves the heart of a pagan king, Cyrus, king of Persia. Persia Cyrus, Persia conquered Babylonia. And now as Cyrus ascends to the throne over this new superpower... He writes in verse 23, This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he's appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any one of his people among you, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. Salvation is by grace, not by works. 
Enjoying God's blessings, living under God's blessings, requires obedience, reciprocation, relationship with Him. Where that relationship does not occur, where there's disobedience and rebellion, then God brings punishment, curse, even judgment. But there's the hope of restoration. And this is what Israel experienced. The blessing, then the curse, and then the restoration. And they came back from exile. And the very bottom of that page, this is the word of Ezra. Ezra records that promise or that event from the Cyrus king of Persia. Take Ezra chapter 1. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to be a temple, to, to build a temple for him at Jerusalem and Judah. Any one of his people among you. And so Ezra records that this pagan king has invited the people of Israel back. This pagan king, inspired by God, directed by God, has invited the people of Israel back to their land to rebuild the temple. Any one of his people among you, may God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem and Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the temple of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. And the people of any place where survivors may now are living are to provide them with silver and gold and help them to build this temple. So now, as he promised, God has been sovereign over all of history and his people have come back to faith in him, come back to obedience, and God brings them back to the land in Ezra chapter 1. And it looks now like they'll be restored to blessing. But what happens? Ezra chapter 4, here's the surprise. Ezra chapter 4, verse 4, page 336. The peoples around them, when Israel, oh, when Israel came back to the land, you realize it's the same thing that's going on to Israel now, right? Why is there so much trouble with the Palestinians in the Middle East now? Because when the, the, the Jews went into diaspora, and then after the Holocaust... The Europeans and Americans in their wisdom decided, okay, we'll, we'll give the Israel a land of its own. What was the problem with giving the Israelis a land of their own, or the Jews a land of their own? Somebody happened to be living in that land. And so all the trouble we have in the Middle East now is because basically the Europeans forced the Palestinians off the land in order to give it to the Jews and the Israelis. But that's what happened in this time. The Israelites were allowed to go back out of exile into the land, but there were people that had been settled in that land in the meantime. And in chapter 4, verse 4, the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah, make them afraid to go on building. They hired counselors, advisors to work against them to frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So God brought his people back to the land, as he promised. And they were anticipating blessing. They were anticipating that the land would be theirs. That they'd have innumerable descendants. They'd build the temple. And they started to build the temple as God called them to. What happens? The people there that weren't Jews opposed the building of the temple. And the temple ground to a halt. Israel stopped. And that's where Haggai comes in. We'll look at it next week. But for this week, here's what we take from the text and from the Israel, history of Israel. God has always been and always will be 
a gracious God. God comes to us when we don't know him, when, we've turned our, when we basically stand with our backs against him. God comes to us and offers us grace. He's always been that way. When God comes to us and offers us grace, he calls us to reciprocation, to enter a relationship with him, to love him and obey him. He does that with us now as he's always, he's always been that kind of a God. If we turn to him, he blesses us. If we turn away from him, we face the prospect of judgment. The only two differences between Old Testament and New are these. In the Old Testament, we could deal with our sins by killing animals. In the New Testament times, it's God who deals with our sin by killing his son or allowing his son to die for our sin. The animals were just a point forward to Jesus. So now in the New Testament era, Jesus has come and he's come to die for sin so that we can have forgiveness. But the other new thing that God has done, and there's two things, not just one, is that Jesus gives us his spirit, as we sang about, to transform us from the inside out. So that now, it's not just Jesus died for us and now we go on our merry way, continue to live any way we want. That still brings judgment. What God has done is sent Christ to die for our sins so that we can have salvation and to give us his spirit, to remake us from the inside. The spirit is a motivating force. Instead of being motivated by, now by sin and anger and hostility toward God, God puts his motivating force in us to transform us so that now, when God reaches out to us, instead of turning our backs and snubbing him, we reach out back to God. This is the difference between Old Testament and New. Not the promises of God, not the grace of God, but simply our ability to believe the promises of God, to accept the grace of God, and to reciprocate with obedience. That's the only difference between Old Testament and New. Christ, not animal, and spirit on the inside rather than law on the outside. We can have what God promised Abraham. We can have what God promised Moses because Jesus has died for us and because the Spirit lives within us. Let's pray together. Father, may these promises be true not only for the history of Israel but in our lives that we might have your blessings because Christ has died for us, because your spirit lives within us, and most of all, because you are a gracious, kind, and giving God. We thank you for your grace to us. In Jesus' name, amen.